Good morning. How are you all? <sighs> for such a time as this, eh? Wow. I just want to start by, you know, thanking you guys for your love and support these past few months. And last Sunday was, for those of you who are here, just a special moment. Thank you so much uh, from Steph and I and the kids. Such a special time. And for those cards and emails and messages I've been receiving, thank you so much. Really, really do appreciate and really do love you guys. I mean that, I don't just say it as a flippant word, but genuinely look at you with eyes of love. I love this place. I love what God is doing in our midst, and he's got amazing things for us. I also want to thank Chris and Fliss. We're so blessed to have our founding pastors here with us. Um, you know, you've been such a support to Steph and I, and thank you for everything. We really do appreciate it. Let's give Chris and Fliss just some encouragement. Bless you guys. Well, here we are. Here we are indeed. And uh, let me get my notes all sorted and find some space for all this stuff. And you know, uh, while I'm kicking off a new sermon series, which of course I've done before many times, and while I'm in some ways kicking off a new year, which I've done once before, <laughs> I'm also laying out a vision for this new season and this new chapter, which uh, I've never done before. <laughs> so forgive me if I exhibit some nerves. And forgive me, this is not going to be your typical three-point sermon. Normal service will resume next week. <laughs> this is really about me sharing my heart. Is that okay? Yes. Sharing with you what God has placed on me. And let me just tell you this, guys. This vision that I'm going to outline as a people is not a one-time event. This is not one-way traffic. You see, I'm going to be meeting with all of you and each of you and praying with you. And how am I going to do that? I'm going to be visiting every single Connect group this year. I want to hear your hearts. I want to share my heart and I want to pray together. And let me say, if you're not in a Connect group, you better get in one now because I'm a coming. <laughs> it's true. Now listen, who's a, if you're a Connect group leader here, put your hands up. And if you're an overseer, wonderful. Stand up. Let's give these guys an applause. You guys do an amazing job. There must be more at the second service. Stand up, no, 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 don't sit down, don't sit down, stand up, stand up. Are you sure there's no more Connect Group leaders? No, there you go, you see you're standing up now. Oh, and we got more. Okay, clearly I see we're gonna have to work on this obedience thing. If you're a Connect Group leader, please stand up and some more. My word, wonderful. Right, if you're, if you're not standing up, stand up, turn around, find someone and pray for these Connect Group leaders that are standing up, quickly. We're just going to quickly pray a blessing on them. And if you're not near anybody, just stand up in a way and just hold your hand out. That's fine. Wonderful. Connect group leaders, you might want to put your hand up at this point so people can still see who you are. These guys are the backbone of the church. And I want more connect group leaders. We want more connect group leaders. And so let's quickly pray. Lord, we want to thank you for these leaders in this church. I just pray health upon them physically, spiritually, emotionally, and mentally. We pray for every one of our connect groups represented here, that you would visit us in power, Lord, that we would see growth and health and vitality. Lord, for their deepest desires and their hearts, these people that stand and represent us as connect group leaders, would you pour your blessing upon them, upon them and their families? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Wonderful. You can sit down now. See, it was worth standing up, wasn't it? <laughs> okay. So, I'm going to come in to visit. That'll be fun. 
There's about 32, 33 connect groups. There's about 50-odd weeks in the year. I've calculated, chuck in some holidays, and I reckon I can do it. It'll be fun. <laughs> OK, so what's my heart? Well, before I outline the vision, I want to share with you two deep convictions that I've held for a long time now and for why I believe that I am here for such a time as this. And, you know, if you've been here any time for these past few months, these will not be a surprise to you because, indeed, I've shared this, albeit briefly, over the past three months. And so this morning is really an opportunity for me to give a bit more detail and share what I believe God has been saying. This is my number one first conviction. Here it is, that we are in the final hour. That Christ is coming soon for his bride that he will come again and come again soon. That soon every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. I'm not alone in this sense. God has spoken of late to countless men and women of God to get ready. Let me tell you guys, if you're sitting here thinking I'm crazy, this is no longer confined to the fringes of some of the wacky preachers of late crying out, the end is nigh. No, this is not. Now, of course, you'll say to me, well, Mark, does Jesus not say in Matthew 24, we do not know the hour? You're absolutely right. But what he also says is you will know the signs of the times. And we've got to know the signs of the times. We've got to get ready. You know, a few years ago, the much-respected author, theologian, and speaker, Artie Kendall, in fact, he spoke here five years ago. He used to be the minister at Westminster Chapel. He spoke at Kensington Temple four years ago. And he spoke, and his title was Signs of the Times. And he pointed to the fact that we have never been closer. That the signs around us are pointing to a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And that he fully expects Christ to return in his lifetime. And there are many other prophetic people saying the same thing. That we only need to see the world and see what's happening right now. To see an acceleration of what God's doing. And let me just say, who knows their Bible? Right? What is the final thing that Jesus says in the Bible? You might be surprised to learn that the final thing that Jesus says is in Revelation chapter 20, 22, verse 20. Do you know what he says? Yes, I am coming soon. The last thing Jesus said. And when John was at the island of Patmos having this revelation... How did he respond to this? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Is that our response to Jesus? Come, Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord, I want that to be my response. Have we lost this sense of urgency of, of old? And you'll say to me, well, Mike, why is this important? Come on, you're not going to be one of those preachers, are you? No, I'm not going to be one of those preachers. But let me tell you why it's important. I'll give you two things. You see, as we look up and as we cry out for him, everything around us, the earthly desires, seem strangely dim. And our affections are turned towards him. It's not that we should not enjoy the world and the blessings God has given us. It's just that they should have their rightful place. And I'm afraid that if you don't look up and cry out for him, your affections are in danger of being part of this world. But what did Jesus say? We are just foreigners in this world, passing through. 
You know, as we look up towards him and say, yes, Jesus, come, we live with an internal perspective, not a temporal perspective. It changes the way we think about our life and what we are called to do. And the second thing, therefore, is as we experience him, his love and his grace and his mercy and his compassion and his loving kindness, what happens? The reality of his love in us compels us to love the lost. When we realize that indeed this dispensation of grace that we find ourselves in is coming to an end, and as we experience the love that God has for us, a, me, Mark Calvagin, a wretched sinner, then I need to tell everybody else about that same love. That is why it is important that we understand the times that we live in, that Jesus is coming again and coming soon. That is why we join with John and say, yes, come soon, Jesus. And so I prophetically feel that we are now headed into a season that is going to be marked with a sense of urgency for this hour. That we are called people to get serious for his namesake. To get ready. To be sober-minded. That doesn't mean that we don't have fun and we enjoy ourselves. It means that we recognize the mission that God has called us. As Chris charged us with last week to make Christ known. For we live in serious times. And I do not want us to be a people that are not ready and prepared for him. Lest we be like those virgins in the parable of the ten virgins that were not ready when the master came. We are not going to be those people. So that is my first conviction and my first heart. The second thing is this. Are you ready? Revival is coming. Amen. It is, it's, I tell you, the reason, I know it's coming because God is moving his people to cry out for it. What do I mean by revival? It's a great question. You know, I love uh, Richard Owen Roberts, who's a historian and revivalist, and he, he says it's this. An extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit producing extraordinary results. Man, I want to see extraordinary results in how we save the lost and how we are healed. I want to see the extraordinary results in how God is magnified and Jesus is made known. Let me just give you a very quick overview of how God has done extraordinary results in this world. In recent times, in the great awakening of the 18th century, here in the UK and in New England in the US, God moved so powerfully with the likes of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers that hundreds of thousands of people, of the poor and disenfranchised, came flooding to the fields to hear the gospel message. Where the, the, the churches had closed their doors, they came to the fields and heard the gospel, and thousands and hundreds of thousands were saved. Slain in the spirit. You know, slain in the spirit is not a recent phenomenon. The very fabric of society in that moment was changed. And where, on the other side of the channel, where revolution broke out in France, do you know what broke out here? Peace. Extraordinary results. What happened in that revival? God showed that in a time where the poor were marginalized, they were important to him. And they still are. In the second great awakening of the 19th century with Charles Finney and others, God moved so powerfully that there was a deep conviction of sin and a need of a personal relationship with Jesus. You know, people would fall on their knees 
and cry out to him even before they got into the meetings and the churches. And the meetings would last night after night and hours after hours and days after days. Millions were saved in that pouring out of the Spirit. God's showing in that revival that it wasn't about religion, but a personal commitment to him. What about the great Welsh revival of 1904? God moved so powerfully out of a prayer burden for the youth that 150,000 souls were saved in two months. Extraordinary results. In fact, whole villages were saved. Pubs had to close down. They had no custom. The miners were so sanctified that their language changed. They no longer swore. They had to retrain the pit ponies, the commands. I am not lying. It's true. And miners at lunchtime will get on their knees and cry out to God. Apparently, in the large city Cardiff, overnight, crime dropped by 50%. Extraordinary results. You know what happened? Evan Roberts, who led that revival, would send a prayer for the children to pray before he would approach the villages. And do you know what happened? The children would pray and revival would come even before he came. Wow. What was God showing in that revival? His heart towards children and the youth. And the Welsh revival birthed 30 other revivals, including in India and Korea, and of course, Azusa Street in Los Angeles, you may have heard of. And that birthed the Pentecostal movement, or what we call the first wave. God's power was seen with amazing signs and wonders and speaking in tongues, recapturing the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. God's power was so thick in that place that neighbors thought the building was burning. They saw flames. This is accounts that you can read, Google it, in the press at the time. The fire engines would come, the firemen would come, and there would be no, no fire but just the smoke and a presence of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Extraordinary results. And the charismatic revival. Post-war, the second wave hit mainland Protestants and the healing revivalists of the 1950s with William Brannan and, Ka and Catherine Coleman and Aura Roberts. There, were, there are accounts of healing so powerful that people were healed as they stepped in the building of cancer and of wheelchairs. Amen. Extraordinary God doing extraordinary results. And then the third wave the neo-charismatic revival, which birthed Vineyard and other movements. What was God showing in this revival? That it wasn't just the revivalists who prayed, but that everyone got to play. That the works of the ministry was for everyone. And I've heard stories, I wish I could have been there in, the, in those early days of, of deliverances and healings, amazing stuff. And then the Toronto Blessing in 1994, where thousands experienced manifestations of the Spirit, bringing out revival and refreshment among his people. That's what he showed. Showing what? His Father's heart towards his church. And I've only given you a few, but there are many, many more over the years. So what now? Do we dare believe for revival in our generation? Do we dare believe it? You know, Marna was, I was speaking to Marna in the office, and she was not knowing what I was speaking about this morning, but she handed me a book about revival, funny enough. She didn't know what I was speaking on. And there was a quote from Charles Spurgeon, and he was asked the same question. Do you know what Charles Spurgeon, the Victorian preacher, you cannot accuse him of fantasism. He said this, 
What God has done once is a prophecy of what he intends to do again. Whatever God has done is to be looked upon as a precedent. Let us with earnestness seek that God would restore to us the faith of the men of old, that we may richly enjoy his grace as in the days of old. Amen. You know, at the end of the Azusa Street Revival, about 100 years ago, William Seymour, who led that revival, and another sister on the eastern seaboard, they had the same prophetic word at the same time. They didn't speak to each other about it. And God said that there would be a latter rain that would eclipse the previous rain, and it would be in about 100 years. We're about that time. Are we alone in daring to believe? You know, at the 20th anniversary of the Toronto Blessing, which happened about four years ago, the anniversary, prophetic words were given by Randy Clark, Heidi Baker, other notable speakers and, and, and members of the charismatic uh, wave. And that was said that what we saw in 1994 was just a foretaste, that a tsunami wave is coming. John and Debbie Wright, the leaders of our movement, and the Vineyard Leadership Group are fasting this month because they have felt God saying that he is about to pour power out and that we should seek him for it. We are not some crazy church. We are part of a global church that is hearing the word of God about what he's about to do. Do we heed it? And closer home still, I have been blessed to have so many conversations with you guys. And there is this sense, you're saying, Mark, I have this sense that some, God's about to do something, that he's on the move. And indeed, we have seen these previous years, shoots of revival. Chris and Phyllis have been praying, praying for revival. This church was founded out of signs and wonders. This is nothing new. This is not a prophetic word. This is just a word with an increased sense of urgency for the times that we live. And let me ask you this question. What is interesting about all revivals is that God shows an area of truth that we have forgotten. And so let me ask the question, what do you think God's about to show us this time? What truth have we forgotten? I've been seeking this question of God a number of months and last year, I had a strong sense that it is this, holiness. That he is about to reveal his holiness and require his people to be clean for him. And so imagine my surprise and my delight when in November I was on holiday and I was reading this book called Preparing for the Glory, written by John and Carol Arnott with contributions from Bill Johnson, Randy Clark, Heidi Baker. And do you know what the prophetic words are? that this revival is going to be a holiness revival. I was pleased to see that it wasn't just me who was hearing from the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let me tell you about my first day in the office. Would you like to hear that? Yeah. It's been a wonderful week. Any staff here? There you go, some over there. Can I just say thank you to the staff? You have made my first week amazing. Bless you guys, staff here. Thank you guys. It's been just a joy. I want you guys to know, and I know you know this already, but they are an amazing set of people. Pray for them, bless them, honor and thank them, because they do an amazing job. They really do. But actually, I didn't start on Monday. I popped into the office on the previous Friday. That was sneaky, wasn't it? Why? Because I thought I'd set up my desk and Chris had cleared his stuff out. Thank you for that. <laughs> but, you know, this is a blessing. You know, 
I was setting up all my books on my computers, but Chris had left me some amazing books. Thank you for those books. And I was peering through them, and uh, there was a book that caught my eye. It was positioned a bit diagonally, and it didn't have anything on the, on the spine of the book. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I'll pick it up. So uh, I picked it up. Here it is. I have it here with me. This is definitely mine now, isn't it? You've given this to me. Thank you. <laughs> Sounds like it, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> and I spent time looking at this book. Now, it's not actually a book. These are conference notes from a conference 30 years ago that John Wimber called in Anaheim, of which I assume you were there, Chris, because there are your, your, your notes in here. That was only eight years after its founding and probably around the same time that this church was founded. And I want to read to you an ex excerpt that I found that struck me. This is from John Wimber, one of the seminars. You ready? The seminar was entitled this, Get Ready. This is what John Wimber said. I've always lived as though Christians have plenty of time before Christ's return. Lately, though, I've reconsidered how much time we have. Now, I don't say this with certainty, but there appears to be an urgency about the times in which we live. Could the days be drawing near to the coming of the fullness of the kingdom of God? And significantly, if the time of the Lord's return is close, doesn't he expect us to prepare ourselves so that we might be a bride fit for the wedding with the Lamb of God? If his return inaugurates our being in his presence forever, shouldn't our highest priority today be seeking God's face? Perhaps this is why I have sensed God saying, get ready. Get ready. Call the people to account. Prepare them. They must be clean. They must be holy. I have never known such urgent leading from the Lord. And what was the name of this conference? Holiness. You can't make this stuff up, can you? Holiness. And you know, I'm not, I'm not lying here. <laughs> I don't lie anything I say on the stage. But listen to this. As soon as I read that and I thought about it, God said this to me, Mark, that's the baton. Some of you would have remembered over the past two years, Chris has been, we haven't had the conversation talk about this, so I hear this is new, you know. But Chris has been using the analogy of the relay race, that he was going to pass the baton over. And then we had the key, of course. I thought, okay, could it be, could it be that the baton represents a message? So where do you go to when you have important questions? Google. <clears throat> it's true, it's true. You do go to Google, don't you? So I typed in Google, what is the history of the relay race? Enter. Do you know what the first thing that came up in the box? Let me read it to you. The relay race, which is now an Olympic event, first began with aboriginals carrying messages between tribes, passed from generation to generation. <laughs> you can't make this up. You see, the key that has been given me for such a time as this represents the authority and the position, but the baton represents the message God has charged me to run with. And that message is for this season is holiness. 
and to prepare us for revival. John had it. He passed it to Chris. Chris has passed it to me. It's the same message that Chris and Fliss have been running with, that we seek him. We seek his face, that we become a people set apart for him because as we do, we position ourselves for his wave. And that you see, therefore, friends, I've spent a lot of time sharing my heart and conviction that we are in urgent hours and that there's about to be a wave of God because that is the heart of where I cast this vision, not of what we are called to do, but who we are called to be. You might have expected me to outline great plans of a shiny new initiative, and those will come. We will do amazing things as we have done these past 30 years. We will continue to change Bit of a paradox, but it's true. For that is the very DNA that has been set in us from Chris and Fliss. But they, they flow out of who we are. And that is exactly what Chris said last week. I'm not changing the message. When Chris said, you know, as we make Christ known, when Chris said as we prepare the guys for ourselves for the works of the ministry and as we learn to love, Chris then said, so what are we to do? And he gave us John 6, 28, that we believe in the one that sent us. And Chris used that phrase that Jesus is our magnificent obsession. And so I'm just reminding us that is indeed what God's called us to do. Before we can do anything, you see, it's who we are. The doing is important, but it also always flows out and is a result of who we are. You see, before we can ever move externally, we have to move internally first. Before we ever set our feet in a new direction, first we have to move our hearts. And God, in this new season, is reminding us to clean our hearts for him. And so what kind of people are we going to be? He's calling us to be that people that are set apart from him. For those that position themselves for him. This will be a place where we will continue to love others. This will be a place where the sick are healed and restored. Continually. Not just sometimes. This will be a place where the lost will run into this building seeking God. This will be a place where Christ is made known to the nations. Hear it. This will be a place of revival. And as I've spent months praying about this, and I've said, Lord, what would you have us do? I felt the Lord gave me five areas where he wants to position our hearts. This is not an exhaustive list. This is not that we ignore every other spiritual discipline, but this is, for this season, the area that God is saying, I want you to focus on these areas, Mark. And this, therefore, is going to be our serious position. You know, just as the surfer can miss the wave if he doesn't read the waves right, so we can miss it too. And the thing about the surfer is he doesn't technically do the surfing bit. The wave does that. God is going to do it in our midst, but we can miss it. And God is reminding us that we need to position ourselves as that surfer. So here are the five things. I'm going to give you a taste of what to expect. The first one is this, humility of heart. Let me give you this quote from Francis Frangipan. He says this about humility. In our desire to know God, we must discern this about the Almighty. He resists the proud, but his grace is drawn to the humble. Humility brings grace to our need, and grace alone can change our hearts. 
Humility, therefore, is the substructure of transformation. It is the essence of all virtues. James 4, 6, we know it so well. God opposes the proud but gives to the humble. Andrew Murray, not to be confused with our, unfortunately, retiring champ, um, 19th century South African theologian and pastor, wrote a book on humility, and he called humility the beauty of holiness. You see, as we position ourselves in humility, as we surrender it all to him and for his glory and for his name, that his plan for our lives is better than our own, that we acknowledge that he is the creator and we are the created, then he pours his grace in us. You know, eight years ago, no, nine years ago, I was in my office at the time, my home office, thinking about Shipping Easy, which was a previous company that I had founded. And God said to me this word, came out the blue. He said, Mark, I will do great things in your life to the degree that you submit to me. I will do great things in your lives to the degree that you submit to me. And I have found that to be true. You see, position of heart becomes, comes first before outward action. And second of all, we're going to look at a hunger for him. You see, as we position ourselves in humility, as his grace is poured out upon us, we start to hunger for him. And we cry out with the psalmist, as the deer panteth for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. Psalm 34 verse 8 says, taste and see the Lord is good. And you see, what happens in humility is we position ourselves and as our self dies away, we recognize that all we need and want is him. And what is God's promise? Psalm 107 verse 9, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And then what do we look at thirdly? We're going to look at this, faith-filled vision. As we hunger for him, as we draw near to him, and he draws near to us, what happens? He starts to fill us. We taste the person of Jesus. It's not about knowledge of Jesus. That isn't enough. It's about experiencing the person of Jesus. His mercy and love and compassion are poured into us. His joy for the church and the pain for the broken. His heart is made known in our hearts. And we realize in that very moment as we get filled, that man does indeed not live on bread alone, but the very word of Christ. And what happens, you see, as we feed on him, our spiritual eyes awaken. The flesh dies. Paul writes about this. And what happens, you see, is a spiritual process. As we allow him to fill us, to transform us, to renew us, as our eyes are open to faith, we start seeing by faith. Our spiritual eyes are awakened, and we need to be people who walk by faith, not by sight. What happens in that moment is you get vision for the person God has created you to be, not for what the world tells you. You get vision for great and wonderful exploits in his name. Vision which requires you to risk it all for him. Vision which requires you to trust him for all. Vision requires you to lay down all your own earthly desires and wants and say, whatever you want, Lord. And that is the place that we find our true joy and our true peace and our true fulfillment. It's vision which propels and compels to fulfill the great commission to make Christ known. And we will do great exploits in this place. We will continue to do great exploits. We have done for 30 years and we will continue to do so. 
And then what do we lead to? Number four, prayerful expectancy. You see, what happens is this. As a, a birth of vision in you, a new way of living, a new endeavor for him is shown, so we respond in prayerful expectancy. Because there is always a time of waiting, a time of testing, a time of growing, a time of pruning. And let me tell you, friends, we are not to feel overwhelmed nor wait passively and dejected. But we are to wait as the disciples did in the upper room when Jesus said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. They didn't go off on holiday. They didn't think, well, it's been five minutes and haven't seen the Holy Spirit. What did they do? They got together in unity. And let me just say, I was so excited last Sunday, but mainly because of the spirit of unity in this place. And we felt that special anointing that is promised let that be a mark of who we are as a people. You know, every move of God has been born out of prayer. The Hebridean revival in Scotland in 1956 or 7 was started. Do you know who by? Two old ladies. Thank you. An 80-year-old blind woman and an 84-year-old woman. And God told them to get on their knees and pray it in. And they prayed every night, hours on their knees for weeks and months. You see, every move of God is marked by a people that are stirred. You see, revival is sovereign, and yet he prepares us for it. And that is what God is positioning us for now. God is about to turn up the dial on prayer here. You know, one of the things that attracted Steph and I to this church was when Chris was talking about prayer, and we saw it actioned in this place. There's no surprise we are the people we are, because we have been a prayerful people. Let us never forget that. And lastly, diligent hands, for we have our part to play. We are his hands and feet. You see, our time, energy, and money are not our own that we should choose what to do with it. I appreciate that's a high calling. But this is the path and the way that God has for us. Why? Because our time, energy, and money is God's. And he requires us to lay it all down on the altar for him. Here's the thing, though. Once we grasp the vision, once we own it, we want to pour ourselves out. In every way, not out of obligation, but a sense of worship. Romans 12.1. I'd like to invite the band up. You know, this won't be easy. It will require us to die to self. It will require us to get serious. But let me just say this, friends. Revival starts with us. Revival starts with me. And it starts with you. For while he is about to move in his church, his promise is, is that he will move in your life. In your family's life. In your friend's life. God is about to reveal himself that you would fully grasp that you are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. That you can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens you. God is about to pour out his spirit upon us. Are we ready? Are we ready for what God is going to do amongst us? Are we a people that cry out for him? Dare we believe it? Not only do we dare believe it, but we need it. Not only do we dare believe it, but that is our heart. Not only do we dare believe it, 
but that is God's promise. Would you stand as I read this? This was written by Mike Bickle. Some of you may know he leads up the International House of Prayer. And commenting on this book, this is what he said. And the band are going to start playing as I read this. Revival has two key elements. There is the sovereign suddenly aspect where it seems God hits a community like lightning, unexpected and dramatic, and yet it's also possible to prepare for it. When you study the climate leading up to the suddenness of God, you notice some common denominators. Some elements that no doubt readied the atmosphere and the people for an invasion of God's spirit. While the planet grows darker, Scripture makes a compelling case that the glory of God will increase upon the people of God. Isaiah 60. God's glory will be released brighter and brighter through a community of people who are longing to express His glory in the darkness. Do you join me in longing for that glory right now? Yes, Lord. Oh, Lord, how we need you. No gimmicks, no emotional entanglement, Lord, and, and pulling of heartstrings. But a true, authentic move of your spirit is what we need, Lord, in this hour. We need to get serious for you in serious times. And you are calling your people to get ready. That you will indeed have a spotless bride for Christ. And right now, I declare in this place that we will be a people ready for you. That we would be a people of humility of heart. So that you would pour your grace in increased measure. That we would be a people that are hungry for you. For you are our everything, our magnificent obsession. That we would be a people that walk by faith, not by sight in every area of our lives, that we would be a people that wait in expectancy in prayer, that you would roll over prayer burdens on our hearts, that we would take this serious and get on our knees and cry out for you, and that we would be a people of diligent hands doing the work of the ministry. Lord, change us, revive us, renew us. Pour your Spirit upon us, I pray, Holy Spirit, and meet every heart here and prepare us for this next wave of your presence, I pray. In your precious name, amen. Let us worship him.